Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. And on the show, you requested him, you got him. We have Jason Cochran back in the co-host seat for this uh, for this edition. And we've got a lot to talk about, don't we, Jason? Yes. By request, we will take those too. We'll talk about the topics. <laughs> yes. Well, I asked for anybody who's not following us on Facebook... Uh, We have a really fun group called the Fromers Roamers, where people talk about travel, ask and answer questions. And I put up last week's podcast and said, what can I do to make it better? And one of you said, bring back Jason. So (laughs) here he is. Whoever you are, Um, thank you. Your check is in the mail. (laughs) So Jason, a lot of people are not traveling right now. Thank goodness, you know, it looks like, knock wood, virus rates are going down. So I'm hoping that travel will be coming back fairly soon. So let's talk about some of the things that are going to be different when people come back. Uh, there's going to be some differences at the airport, right? few of them. One of them, you know, it's like the never ending news story is finally coming to an end this year. And I'm talking about real ID. And just me uttering those words makes me want to take a nap. We've been hearing about this since 2005. It's that we're all going to need these driver's licenses that conform to new ID standards so that you can, they can be trusted to fly and, you know, you know, you get on the airplane with them and the federal government knows who you are and they can cross check you with a safe passenger list, all that stuff. And this is only domestic travel. Right. For for your driver's license, you know, it would be a real ID a driver's license. And if you use your driver's license to fly domestically, yes, it would be for that. Now, this was all put in place after 9-11 to try to just to get a hold on who people are and how they check into flights. And it took all this time for various wild political reasons and then the pandemic. But finally this year, the hard deadline is coming down October 1st. If you want to fly with an ID that's a driver's license or you know a state ID that's like a driver's license, you must have it verified as real ID or it won't be accepted. Now, for some people, they're like, so? Because a lot of states have already moved to real ID, whether you knew it or not. If your driver's license or ID card has a little star or something in the upper right-hand corner, that's usually how these things are denoted, it already has real ID. It's because you showed them your social security card or something, some other documentation about who you are to get the license. But a few states are holding out and have been holding out. And um, if you live in one of those states that it has been holding out on real ID, the deadline is coming. If you want to fly using your license, you must get it by October 1st. I recommend doing it now. Because there's going to be more of a flood of people as travel begins and they realize they need it. Also, passport. Don't forget that. It's a separate thing from Real ID. But if you want your passport renewed or you want to get a new one, do it now before the rush because there's going to be a lot of pent-up demand. Yeah, absolutely. So that's going to be different as well. When you go through security, that's going to be different for, for kind of a tragic reason. I was just reading the other day that the TSA has been particularly hard hit by COVID. They've had a really high percentage of TSA agents come down with it. And so I, I think this move has more to do with keeping those agents safe uh, than anything else. But why don't you explain what the move is? Well, I'll tell you why what you're, you're feeling about it isn't actually true. It's not because of this, but it will help. It will okay. help the yes. thing you're concerned about. This has actually been going into place since before the pandemic. And what it is, is there uh, when you when you the first person you meet when you go through the TSA line they check your ID and you hand it over and they look at it and they hand it back they might scribble something you can you can't figure out what they just wrote on there but it must be important I hope it means I can walk on through so those people from now on TSA is trying to move every airport to where you stick your own ID in a scanner 
And then it cross-checks your name with passenger lists. So you can walk right through there without handing anything over to that agent or uh, with having a boarding pass even because your name is cross-referenced with passenger lists. Um, These pieces of equipment are very slowly being rolled out across the country. About 1,500 of them have been, been, they're self-scanners really. They they have a a more complicated name. Um, What do they call them? I'll tell you. It's like uh, the credential authentication technology scanner. It's a CAT scanner, which confuses you all again. I need to use the CAT scanner. It makes it confusing. Okay. So let's just call them self-scanning ID. About 1,500 of them are in. Los Angeles LAX is the first airport to be 100% converted to this new system. They uh, operate at 125 airports nationwide, but not every checkpoint. But eventually, we hope to see them basically everywhere at every single checkpoint there is. So you won't have to, yes, hand dirty anything over to this agent. They'll just direct you to the scanner and you do it yourself. Well, that'll be good. And I, I would assume that will that will probably speed things up, you know, once there are crowds again. So it that's will, you great. know, and other countries have been doing this for years. I know I, when I go to the UK, when I go to Canada on their immigration side, which is not the same as what, you know, we're talking about TSA, you know, they use scan and it takes care of everything for you. You don't have to hand over to anybody. So it has been coming in across the board. But yes, the TSA started this before the pandemic. And I think it, the pandemic just gave them a good reason to, to, pr- to press it forward a lot more quickly for everyone's okay. safety. And again, if you want to do the same similar thing, less paperwork when you come back through through the border on your way home from other countries, that's global entry. It's a different thing. This is strictly just the TSA checkpoint for security. Right. Uh, so that's what will be different at the airport. There will also be differences in destinations. And one of the most fascinating differences, I think, I just wrote about this yesterday, Paris is going to be giving the Eiffel Tower a new color. Uh, This kind of blew my mind. This is in honor of the Paris Olympics, which are coming up. And uh, surprisingly, they're going to be going back to the color that Gustave Eiffel wanted originally, which he didn't get, I should say. When When the structure was first built, it was painted bright red. Uh, and you have to always paint a metal structure to secure it so it doesn't get corroded. So there there aren't problems uh, with, you know, being outside and in the elements. And they're always painting it anyway, right? I mean, they've got to put something on it. Well, they paint it every seven years. It takes about 15 months to do it. And the people who do it seem to love the job. I read an interview with some guy. He said, it's like being on a ropes course. It's so great to be hanging over Paris you know, painting, but they not only paint, they have to chip away some three inches worth of old paint. And the new Eiffel Tower is going to be gold. It's going to be gold, like a gold medal, if you can imagine. I, I'm assuming they're not going to have any glitter in it, that it won't look silly, uh, but it, it should look very, very different. And this is the color that that Gustave Eiffel wanted. He wanted this goldish brown. Interestingly, the Eiffel Tower has three different colors on it. It's darker at the base, and then it gets lighter as it goes up. It, to somehow that makes it fit in with the cityscape better. It's felt. what color would you call it now? It always just sort of feels brownish gray to me. It's a very it nondescript is. color. It's a very nondescript color. Yeah, and I I, I think that was purposeful, but now 
boy, oh boy, it's going to be gold medal gold. So that it's going to be very interesting. I wonder if they'll keep it up for a while. You know, now there's all these replica Eiffel Towers around the world. You know, there's one in Vegas and one in Epcot. I wonder if they're going to go, oh, great. Now we have to get paint ours gold too. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how, well, it'll be at least seven years because it costs 50 million euros. I mean, that's one big tower to paint. So it's it's not a small undertaking. So yeah, I know it's going to be these a while. giant structures. I mean, they have a paint full-time paint crew. They just go from one end to the other, then they start all over again, like on the Golden Gate Bridge, as an example. There's just, it's not, they bring, they don't bring contractors in sev- every seven years. They're just rotating the entire time, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But, and they always paint the Golden Gate Bridge. This, in fact, wasn't the Golden Gate Bridge, I pretty, I'm pretty sure I read this somewhere. This was the undercoat uh, color and they were going to paint it another color that it's kind of a reddish color now and has always been, but people liked the red so much they kept it that way. Have you ever heard that? I've heard something similar. Don't don't know if it's true, but it, it is, you know, I think when I was a kid, I wondered why it wasn't gold too. Maybe that's the yeah. next thing to be painted gold. Everything is going to be very Vegas by the time it's all finished. Right. Yeah. So that'll be different. There's going to be more to see in Italy of all places. Interestingly, two things that have been closed for decades are reopening. One was the tomb of the very first emperor. And when you look at a bird's eye view of Rome, you can see that tomb. It's this massive circular structure that they decided to close up a while ago and now they've they've redone it there's going to be a new museum not redone it but they they renovated it to make it uh, last longer into the future and in Pompeii they've reopened the museum that's been closed since earthquakes in the 1980s uh, so that's going to be a, a major reason to go to Pompeii. I'm really happy about that because Pompeii has been um, – it's, it's an incredible place to visit, but it's uncomfortable because a lot hmm. of the stuff they have has either not been visible or it's been outside where if it's right. hot, it's a really rough day. So this is going to be terrific to have an indoor facility for a lot of these treasures. I you know, had completely forgotten that you could do such a thing <laughs> because I was so yeah. used to seeing everything outside in Pompeii. Well, I always give the advice on Pompeii that if you're going to go see it – also spend time in Naples because people forget Pompeii was discovered or rediscovered uh, in the 1700s. And back then they didn't know anything about historic preservation. So they lopped off uh, a lot of great sculptures and and terracotta figurines that were on buildings and they, they carted them away to, to live in various manor houses and a lot of them ended up in the spectacular archaeological museum in Naples. It's probably the best archaeological museum in all of Europe. And that stuff is still there. So in order to You get an really incomplete picture it, if you just you go to the site. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you don't get to see any of the erotic stuff. Uh, they have all kinds of things that were in front of bakeries. Yes, there was a lot about rising dough. Uh, <laughs> they got very creative with that. That you can see. And you actually have to get a special, you have to go to a special window when you're getting your ticket to go to the museum to go to the erotic part. They don't let you in if you're under 18. So anyway. Yeah. But <laughs> but see that when you're a 13 year old, that, that's that kind of humor though. Rising dough jokes. Are, I'm all about that when I, you're a kid. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably when you wanted to really be in the erotic room. I didn't get to go. That's I the had only my time kid. the erotic room is actually erotic. 
<laughs> you're a grown up. You're just like, oh, look, statues. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway. But, you know, I, we wrote another article recently on Fromers.com about the movie The Dig. Uh, you know, we mm. talk about how the place where they found the thing is, yeah, it's there. There's a few things left, but most of it was moved to the British Museum. And if so, if you really want to learn about the place, you have to think of going to two different spots where yeah. it ended up and where it was found. Yeah. Yeah. I have to see that. I haven't, did you see the movie? Was it worthwhile? I think it's very sweet. It's, um, I don't, don't worry, no spoilers. I'm religious about not spoiling for listeners and readers, but it's, it's a, it's a character movie. You know, it's, you learn about the people who do the dig. Uh, it, that's the focus of it. And if you like character movies and just getting to know interesting people, then you'll, you'll like the dig. People I know who have seen it, uh, who like those character movies, those British period pieces, they really like them. I, I got to see it. Maybe I'll see, maybe I'll watch it tonight. So that's for the distant future. Hopefully not too distant, but it involves crossing the Atlantic Ocean. And who knows when we Americans will be able to do that again. If you want to travel closer to home, Jason wrote a terrific piece about Niagara Falls. Now, in the past, when one visited Niagara Falls, one always went to both sides, the Canadian side and the American side. In fact, the Canadian side had a better reputation. People thought it was cleaner, it was glitzier, it had more high-end attractions. But now we can only stay on the American side. But you in your article say that that's not necessarily bad. Right. Well, you know, if you want to, the old Maryland movie, for example, that's the Canadian side. All that, that, those big hotels and everything are all on that side, which of course, we, the, the border being closed right now, Americans can't get over to. And the problem with the New York side has never been about the falls. People don't like the American side because the town of Niagara Falls is past its prime and, and is really ripe for a refresh, let's say, like, like that Roman tomb. Um, and so people just don't don't like to hang out on the American side, but there are some really strong benefits of staying on the American side. So you, if you go this year, um, and it's a great year to go, you don't feel like you're going to be missing out on the falls because the American side was preserved in the 1880s as the first state park. The longest surviving state park in the country is the Rim, and the American side also has two sections of the falls because there's a little breakaway river and an island in the middle of the falls. Um, so you can see not just the Canadian horseshoe th- aside that is so familiar in pictures, but there's also Bridal Veil uh, Falls, and I forget the other one, um, but they're, they're on the American side. So they're, they're much easier to get closer to the water on the American side because that's where you can do the famous Cave of the Winds walk, which is where you take an elevator down and then you emerge and you're walking on a walkway kind of half underneath the spray. They give you flip-flops and they, you know, a, a plastic thing to put over you so you don't get drenched unless you want to Poncho, be. Poncho, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so that's a very cool thing. They don't, you can't really do that at Horseshoe Falls on the Canadian side because it's straight down. But here, erosion over the years has created more of like a little pattern of rocks that you can walk among right next to the falls and so you get much closer to it. And that's also where the Maid of the Mist go, f- goes from. That's the famous boat. Now, it yeah. used to be one boat, like in the 1840s, called the Maid of the Mist. And now it's a fleet of boats and they're all electric. They've just been converted. So they're they're sleek and quiet. And they will technically take you to the Canadian side. Uh, you will drift over the border in the middle of the Niagara River. But because you don't ever land on the Canadian side, it's not a problem. So you can hmm. still be on the Canadian side of the falls right now, even though you're stuck in America. But the, there are other great things. Like some of the best hiking is about two or three miles down from the falls in the gorge. Gorgeous hiking right along the river as it storms by you. But there's a brand new museum that a lot of people haven't heard about yet that opened about three years ago. That's all about the Underground Railroad. And if you think about it, you know, in 
in those days, people would try to make their way north and then they would – many of them cross over from Niagara Falls, New York into Ontario going over the bridge, the suspension bridge that was right there at the falls. And there's a museum finally dedicated to that and to the people who helped, uh, to the stories that, that, that are behind that whole chapter in American history. The bridge they crossed over isn't there anymore, but it is at the base of where the bridge used to be. So you can see the abutments. That bridge meant freedom for many, many, many people in American yeah. history. So it's a great history museum to go to if you care about, if you care about that kind of thing in the, the 19th century. Fascinating histories. But you know, Niagara Falls, New York had got a bad rep over the years because, you know, it became famous for where you go to run across the border and get married or Mm -hmm. where you go to gamble. You know, it was, it just, uh, it just, it lost its, uh, it used to be the pinnacle of tourism, used to be the place you'd want to go, the the Grand Canyon of uh, early America because Grand Canyon was too hard to get to back then, but it was the natural site everyone had to see. Um, Mm -hmm. But over the years, it just sort of uh, faded. I think it's really due for recovery, that town. Um, uh, But there's plenty to see and do. And I list a few other really great things to do in in the area in the article that I've got up on Fromers.com. Well, talking about what people used to do for their travels, you also focused on a series of short films that were shown before the major movies uh, in the 1930s and the 1940s, and they were called travel talks. And people are talking about them now because Turner Classer Classic Movies is now showing them on TV again. T- talk a little bit about these. this. We got such great reaction to your article on these little short films. And I had so much fun writing it, but people haven't really don't remember them strangely, even though they were were a staple of pop culture. You know, when you a certain generation, we're talking people who would go to the movies during the Great Depression and the 40s, there would be a number of shorts that would run before your feature film began. Uh, you know, there'd be a cartoon and maybe a newsreel. And often, especially for MGM films, they'd be one of these. And it was a guy named James A. Fitzpatrick who would just travel the world and shoot 10-minute reports from wherever he went. And he went to exotic places. He was going to deep Asia and and Indonesia, but also America and South America at times when no one could travel, really, because no one could afford to or had the time to. And he would bring it back to you in full color. And he would narrate it in a way that was so colorful. And I, I like to say it's purple prose because it's so overdone. You know, and now as the coffee scents waft across the bow of the boat, we bid goodbye to the – it's that kind of thing that we now kind of associate in a way with our joke about travelogue movies. Well, he created that. He created the joke that we tell about funny travelogue stories. Actually – people have forgotten uh, them. I told my friend Jeremy, uh, I have a friend from college, Jeremy Arnold, whose name may sound familiar if you watch TCM, because he's one of the people who will often be on air commenting on those movies. He's a he's a movie historian. And he told me that the man who made the travel talks was the very first person to actually put narration to film, that he created that whole way of of uh, telling a story, and that's that's some legitimacy to that because his he although he had done a few documentaries before he stumbled onto the travel talk series his idea his first travel talks was 1931 and sound was coming in of course films in 1927 1928 so that does track you know and he, he was yeah. a pioneer in other ways because he worked with MGM which had lots of money in fact at one point he was earning the equivalent of 1.4 million a year to do these. Wow. In the 1930s, he was earning 80000 which is about the same. In 1934, 
he decided, well, I'm going to go to see the tulip uh, harvest in the Netherlands. I don't want to film that in black and white. So he got a hold of the new three-strip Technicolor process five years before you know, The Wizard of Oz and other movies that we now recognize as being at the start of this. In 1934, he filmed The Tulip Harvest in three-strip Technicolor color, and he stuck with color uh, for the rest of the Travel Talk series. So he, he did lead the way in some ways because he could, because he would have great directors of photography with him, and they were only 10 minutes. So the studio was willing to say – well, let's experiment. Let's see. It's only 10 minutes worth of film. We'll try this. Uh, and so he got away with a little bit more. Uh, now, less progressive was his outlook. I do think he loved travel. I do think he had respect for people. But his narration is quite often uh, parochial, racist even. you know, mm. We all like to say, well, that's how they talked back then. That's, that's true. So it can be rough going a little bit when you watch. You have to sort right. of take the rough with the smooth. But the visuals, you can't compare because – You'll get to see Japan before the atom bombs, Korea wow. before division, you know, the, the the desert of Las Vegas before the strip was even an idea, huh. Paris before the Nazis marched in, the, the, the hutongs of, of Peking, which is now Beijing, and have mostly been bulldozed away. So you get to see a lost world in color. A lot of places weren't filmed maybe ever. And some of the people you'll see were certainly never filmed again. So it's it's worth just as a historical document. They've put them out on DVD as well. But P- TCM, Turner Classic Movies, if you have that on cable, um, it will insert them often in between films when there's they need to fill about 10 minutes of time. Wow. Yeah. No, it was a, f- a fascinating piece. Okay. So the last thing I want to discuss with you is another historical article we put up. I actually worked on this one and, and it was about classic American food and where it comes from. I mean, it's it's hard to think there was one place that invented the hamburger, but there was, and it was in New Haven. And amazingly, when you go to this place, it's called Louis Lunch, your burger is grilled up on an 1898 griddle that's still in use. And they, they use this proprietary blend of five different cuts of meat. And they, they'll tell you the story about how the hamburger was invented. Apparently in 1890, a guy rushed in and said, I'm in a big rush. What can you give me You know that I can eat quickly? And uh, they use, usually served steaks, but sometimes they'd have little bits cut off the steaks. So he took all those little bits put them on bread and gave it to the guy and the guy loved it. And so, so not from Hamburg, apparently. I've always assumed they're from Germany because of hamburger, you know? Yeah. I actually I don't know where the name comes from. That's an interesting But this question. is an interesting story because it's it says that the Library of Congress has certified the claim that this indeed is where at least it began in America and it's still open. And the whole article that you wrote is fascinating. Yeah. Every single place, you can still go taste the dish. They're still open. Yeah, absolutely. Like the place that invented ice cream cones is a place called Dumars in Norfolk, Virginia. And the man who invented the ice cream cone happened to be at the 1904 World's Fair, went up to the ice cream vendor because he wanted some ice cream. And the guy said to him, oh, I'm really sorry, I've run out of paper plates. And there was a waffle vendor right next to him. And he thought, well, why don't I just, you know, wrap up one of those waffles? So he went to the waffle vendor and then with his waffle kind of, you know, made into a makeshift cone, he had the ice cream guy put some ice cream on top of that and realized it was the best treat 
forever. <laughs> and and you can so slow down. You don't have to eat the ice cream as fast because you have something to hold it in. Exactly. And so he he actually got the waffle vendor and the ice cream maker to work together and he became a third partner. And they were such a hit at the fair that he decided to create a machine that would create waffles in the right shape. And then he opened his first uh, ice cream stand in Virginia and soon it was a chain and the rest is history. Uh, so it, it it was such a fun one to research. Uh, the red velvet Cake. I always thought that came from the Deep South. Comes from the Waldorf Astoria. Back back in World War II, there was a sugar shortage, and so bakers were using beet juice to flavor their cakes, and that's how it it became a red cake. So so lots of fun stuff. We hope you'll visit us on Fromers.com. And I'm going to say goodbye to Jason right now. Very Thank well. you, Jason. Thanks for and having me. Yeah, of course. And we're going to bring on our next guest, who is consumer advocate and travel journalist par extraordinaire, Christopher Elliott. You can find his work at Elliott.org. He also writes a lot for the Washington Post, and that's why I thought of having him on this uh, segment, because he wrote a fascinating piece on what it takes to get a second passport. We discussed that with him later, but he was so... What's the word? Excited about some of the travel news or what we think may be happening in the coming days and weeks that we discuss that first. Okay, here's Chris. So welcome to the Fromer Travel Show, Chris. Hey, Pauline, how you doing? Good. Although travel, hmm. Not happening much. And and before we got on this call, we started speculating about why travel may be curtailed even further. On the horizon, a lot is bubbling. The, the Biden administration has been very proactive, uh, which is a big change. And what what have you been hearing that they're thinking they may do very soon? The first thing is that the administration is strongly considering requiring a negative PCR test for domestic flights, which means that if you're flying anywhere in the United States, you have to show a negative COVID test before you get on the plane and on the return. And, uh, and that means that if you're staying for uh, longer than three days, you've got to get another test when you're at your destination. Now, that has not happened yet, but if it does... That would really affect how, how people travel. It would probably shift them to driving to cars instead of you know, driving, mm-hmm. driving to their destination rather than flying. But just last week, we also heard that the Biden administration is looking into limiting travel to uh, certain states, uh, specifically Florida and California. And it's not clear how that would happen. I mean, uh, they, they probably would limit flights. Or, or, you know, getting on a flight would be um, you'd have to show some ID that you actually live there or, or um, potentially even roadblocks. You know, and I'm, I'm thinking about driving on, on I-10 or I-95 and you get to the state line and they stop you right there and say, you know, do you have business in Florida? Do you, um, you know, uh, do you live here? And if not, they'll turn you back. Why California and Florida? Well, I don't know. Uh, I can I can only speculate not because I wasn't in those, those meetings, but I, I assume that uh, it, they have high COVID rates and also it's a very popular spring break destination. 
and they want to keep huh. it's specifically it's those those dangerous variants the b117 variant from the uk and then the brazil and south africa variant too which transmit much faster and they're more contagious and they want to stop those from getting any worse because right now you know you have the number of covid cases are going down number of deaths are kind of going down too yeah. but if yeah, there has been good spread, news right yeah but if they if they spread then then we're going to lose all the progress that we've made do you i mean have you read i have not read that those variants are more likely found in those states no have you I, I I don't know. Uh, I I I know that the the British variant is found in I think thirty five states, but I don't know that what the prevalence is. I am not an epidemiologist. I'm a consumer advocate. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> yeah. Um, Damn it, Jim. Our- all right. Well, let's let's talk about a way that people have been traveling that might sidestep all of this, and it's a it's a crazy thing. In the last several months. We have been covering something I'd never thought we'd cover at Fromers.com, which is relocation. A lot of people are scratching the travel itch by picking up and moving somewhere new for often long periods of time because a lot of us are now remote workers and we can work from anywhere. And you had a fascinating piece in the Washington Post about getting a second passport, which would allow Americans, uh, theoretically at least, to move to Europe or move to Asia or move wherever that second passport is valid. How is that accomplished? I know that's a huge question. Uh, yeah, but that's okay. Um, well, as you say, a lot of, uh, remember there, during the pandemic, when, when the pandemic actually started, you, you had a lot of national borders that closed, but they were still open to people who, were, who had a passport, who were nationals of that country. If you and and so if you wanted to go to Europe, if you had a passport that was an EU passport, you could get there. That got a lot of people to thinking, you know, uh, what if I could get myself an EU passport? Well, it turns out that you can. Um, most Americans, or say a lot of Americans, have some ancestry that traces back to Europe. And so if you if you in a lot of these European countries will allow you to apply for uh, EU citizenship based on your ancestry. And so that's what a lot of folks are doing. There's these new services that have, have popped up that uh, allow you to apply based on your ancestry. They will go out and find the paperwork that's necessary and, and guide you every step of the way. And so, and I talk to people who have been doing that and it's not just Europe. Uh, I've talked to people who are you know, doing it for other countries as well. The Caribbean is very popular. Um, they, they actually, uh, you know, you can, you can, the, the barrier to entry, let's say is not very high. And, uh, and so it, it, it's, this is, and, and there are really two reasons for that. Number one, people want to go, be able to go where they want to go. So they, they want to go to Europe. They want to be able to go and not be stopped at the border because they don't have a European passport and they don't want to be limited to just having to stay for three months that's the limit under the Schengen Agreement that you can stay if you're a U.S. citizen. The, uh, the other reason is, you mentioned this before, is that people want to uh, potentially relocate. Uh, and, right. and now with everything being done on Zoom, you know, you don't really have in-person meetings anymore because of the, the virus. And so people are moving to all kinds of different places. And a second passport allows them to do that. Well, let's, let's talk about some specific places. I have a dear friend whose grandfather 
moved to the U.S. and had children before he became a citizen. He was from Spain. And so that has allowed her to move to Spain. She actually did it before the pandemic hit. She's been in Spain this whole time. And by Spain's rules, she has to have a job outside of Spain for a couple of years. So she can't be a burden on the state, but that is working towards her citizenship there. I have another friend who moved to Portugal who has no connection to Portugal whatsoever, but she was able to get a job there. And before she did that, she found out if she had spent a lot of money buying property in Portugal, that would work. Mm-hmm. Those are two two examples. Can you give us some more? Yeah. Well, that's actually um, a there's all sorts of ways of getting citizenship. There's uh, what you mentioned, the golden visa, which is spending anywhere from 250 to 500,000 euros in a, a place like Portugal. It depends on what you're investing in. The bar is a little bit lower for real estate investments. Hmm. And um, and then but uh, golden visas are, are have always been real popular. It's mostly it's for high net worth individuals, obviously, but people also want to avoid taxes. We could spend probably an entire episode talking about that. Um, yeah. Another way of getting citizenship is by marrying someone who is a, a national, and and the typically the barrier to entry is much lower if you if you're married to someone who's in that country. The other way is, as you mentioned, um, living in the country for a certain amount of time. It depends on the country. Some, uh, you know, I, I did some research on Greece, for example, because I have some Greek ancestry, and it's um, it's seven years for Greece. But for a place like uh, Ireland or France, it's less. I think it's five years for the, for them. And um, so living there, and the way you would do it is you would just get a one-year visa. You can apply for a one-year visa. Then when you're there, you can uh, apply for an extension, and that'll get you to the point where you need to be to apply for citizenship. But you have to actually uh, live there. Right. It, it can be a little more complicated than that. My cousin many, many years ago uh, fell in love with a, a French woman uh, and ended up moving to France. And he couldn't live in the United States with her uh, for any serious amount of time. To, that that put his French citizenship in, in jeopardy. So he had to be there and seriously be in Paris. Poor guy. I know that's a rough Oh, life. yes. Boo-hoo, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but he eventually became a French citizen uh, and it, it changed his life. Now, If you employ one of these agencies to help you with the paperwork, and the paperwork could be massive, right? How much does that cost? And and if you try to do it on your own, what type of paperwork are you looking at? Well, I'm going to give you a little preview of my next Washington Post column, which (laughs) I don't know when it's going to be out because I'm still working on it. But uh, in, in that story, I said that I was going to pursue Greek citizenship. My grandfather came over in, uh, the, early 20th century and emigrated and ended up in Charlotte. And uh, in order for me to get a Greek passport, I first have to establish that my grandfather was born in Greece. And in some countries, that's easy when they have good record keeping, but in others, it's not. And for me, I had to hire someone to go to the Greek mail records um, uh, area where they keep the Greek mail records. Uh, mm. at City Hall in Sparta, Greece, to find wow. my grandfather's paperwork. And I had to pay a, an attorney 450 euros just to get that that document, which was wow. you know, not, not a, a cheap thing. 
Fortunately, though, I have two other relatives who are also interested in getting a Greek passport. So we all chipped in and yeah. uh, split the cost. So there's, there's that. And then I have to also prove my lineage. So I have to get my, my grandfather's marriage certificate. Uh, I have to get my, my dad's birth certificate and his marriage certificate. So his, whatever the marriage license is, I don't know what they call it. Each state has a different name for it. And, right. and I have to get them apostilled, which means I got to get an official seal from the state. And then I huh. present all of that to the Greek embassy. And then they submit an application on my behalf. And the whole process takes about a year. This is a kind of a side question, but what if your parents hadn't been married? What if they were just, you know, living together and had you? Would that not count then? Well, in, in 1960, you know, seven or 66, they were married in 1966. That would have been unlikely, especially right. since my parents were in the ministry. I don't think they would have had <laughs> much of a ministry if they had done that. Right. But yes, if this had been kind of a modern relationship, uh, there, uh, I don't know. I've heard... I've been on, there's a dual citizenship a Facebook group that I'm a member of, and I think that yeah, they can establish that with DNA now, but it's ah. a little bit, there's a little bit more of a, a hurdle that must be overcome. Interesting. And in your article where you profile a couple of people who are going through this, as well as talking about your own journey to get, a, to get Greek citizenship, you talk about folks who have hired agencies. So not just an individual lawyer, but an agency to take care of all of it. And this can cost tens of thousands of dollars, right? Well, yeah. The two agencies I mentioned were Get Golden Visa and then uh, Embark Beyond, which is a, a travel agency based in New York. And they just started their own service that does this. The, uh, the big expenses happen when you run into a legal problem. I interviewed someone who was trying to get Italian citizenship and because it was, uh, it was through her grandmother, there were some laws that prevented you from originally a long time ago from getting Italian citizenship through a, um, a maternal, maternal line. line. Yeah, wow. exactly. And, uh, and so they, she had to go to court and that cost her, I think somewhere around $10,000. And she had to hire a lawyer in Rome to, to take care of that. The ex actual expenses of getting a passport are not that high. I mean, I was talking to someone who was getting her German passport and it cost her a couple thousand dollars. But really, if you start to think about the value of a German passport, it, you know, you can start getting some of the social uh, benefits of having that, that passport sure. um, in terms of, you know, medical care and education. It, it's very you know, it's a small price to pay. Right. Well, she was, I think I remember from your article, she was a wedding planner. So she's hoping to do international weddings this way, do them in the U.S. and in Germany. Well, it, it does. Yeah, the, you're absolutely correct that it opens up a lot of other opportunities for you because you can, you know, can do things that a non-citizen wouldn't be able to do. And you have all uh, of, the, of the European countries that you can potentially do business in or settle in. And, and so that really does uh, open up a lot of possibilities for you as a traveler. Yeah. Well, Chris, since you know everything and I have you on the line, I'm going to surprise you with a question that I'm sure you'll be able to answer. You were talking just a moment ago about travel agencies getting into this business and helping people get their citizenship elsewhere. I would think this is something travel agencies need to do. Because uh, according to a recent article from Skift, which is a, an industry publication, uh, the major 
league of travel agents, I'm blanking on their name, has just announced that they expect something like 80% of American travel agencies to go belly up because of this pandemic. If people are dealing with a travel agency or with a tour operator or with some other industry business uh, to, to plan trips well in advance, you know, maybe they're looking for next fall, maybe it's a big anniversary or a honeymoon or something that they're planning now. Quickly, what are the things they need to do to protect their money in case of bankruptcy? Yeah, you're referring to a, a statistic, a very alarming statistic that was uh, published last year by the American Society of Travel Advisors. And they said that without aid, without government aid, 80% would be out of business by this year. Fortunately, they did get some aid. So we're, we're uh, you know, we escaped that one. Oh, but, well, um, that's good. Yeah, but, but it still is. These are not the best of times for travel agencies. Uh, it, it is a good thing that they're diversifying. I, th- I think that's a great business plan. So start offering things like passport services. Still, even if you are working with a great travel advisor, you need to make sure that you're doing some things to protect your own trip. One of the big mistakes that people make is not reading the terms of their purchase. So they don't read the, the tour operator agreement, uh, the uh, the cruise ticket. Um, not that anyone's taking a cruise right now, but the, but they may uh, be in the future. Yeah, and 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 it's true. Most cruises are booked a year, year and a half in advance. So if you are booking a cruise for twenty two or twenty three, you might want to look at your ticket contract to make sure that you're you know what you're getting and that you're protected. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is payment method. People will. Uh, I don't know why they do that. They'll pay by check or they'll even wire money. And that's not a very good way to pay. You want to use a credit card because you you st- you are protected under the Fair Credit Billing Act, and, and if you need to, you can actually make a, a charge back. And especially if there is a bankruptcy or an insolvency of some kind, you can retrieve all of your money easily. Now, I know most, not most, but many travel insurance policies don't cover insolvency. So if you're trying to protect yourself that way. It's another place where you have to read the fine print, right? Well, they do protect you if you're there's a, a, a travel like a delay during and you know and due to an insolvency, there is some protection there. But um, you know, technically, it's called a trip interruption. Hmm. But um, but the the real issue is if you're dealing with say a tour operator or a cruise line that um, has its own insurance or its own travel protection. If that tour operator goes out of business, then uh, also you lose all the protections that you would get if it's not real insurance. Yeah. So it's a good idea to use third-party insurance and and not rely on the cruise line or the tour operator because, of course, if the tour operator goes out of business, there goes your insurance. Yeah, yeah. Well, great as advice as always. Uh, thank you so much, Chris. It's always such a delight to read you in the Washington Post and and elsewhere. Is yeah, there some place uh, if if there's some place uh, th- that you'd like our listeners to to find your material? Where where would you send them? Oh yeah, uh, well um, I run a nonprofit consumer advocacy organization. We help consumers, not just travelers, but anyone. So if you have a problem and you're getting nowhere, you can contact us. That URL is elliot.org, e l l i o t t dot o r g. So two l's and two t's dot org. And if you go to elliot.org forward slash help, there's a form you can fill out. Our help is completely free. We're supported by donations, 
but no pressure. We would love to help you either way. Um, so that that's um, that's where you can find all of my stuff. And then also, of course, in the Washington Post and USA Today. All right. Well, great talking to you, Chris. So that's it for this week's Fromer Travel Show. But as always, I am deeply grateful that you've come along for this journey with me. It's been an interesting thing moving from a a studio to my bedroom (laughs) to record this show, to edit it, to get it out to you. Please visit us. We are all over the place. We're at Fromers.com. You can find us on Facebook. There's both a Fromers page and there's the Fromers Roamers group, which we hope you'll you'll join. Uh, we're on Twitter. We're on Pinterest. We're on Instagram. We're all over the place. Where we're not is traveling right now. Hopefully, we will be back on the road soon. As I said earlier in the broadcast, I'm taking heart by the, from the fact that transmission rates seem to be going down. Knock wood, thank goodness. So in the hope that we all soon will be able to scratch that travel itch, to get out on the road, to see people and places and cultures and taste new foods and see new sights and interact with strangers. With all that in mind, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. See you next week. <laughs>